Chapter One of Farewell to Nicola by Guy Boothby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter One We were in Venice, Venice the silent and mysterious, the one European city of which I never tire. My wife had not enjoyed good health for some months past, and for this reason we had been wintering in southern Italy. After that we had come slowly north, spending a month in Florence, a fortnight in Rome, en route, until we found ourselves in Venice, occupying a suite of apartments at Galaghetti's famous hotel overlooking the Grand Canal. Our party was a small one. It consisted of my wife, her friend Gertrude Trevor, and myself, Richard Hatteras, once of the South Sea Islands, but now of the New Forest, Hampshire, England. It may account for our fondness of Venice when I say that four years previous we had spent the greater part of our honeymoon there. Whatever the cause may have been, however, there could be no sort of doubt that the grand old city, with its palaces and churches, its associations stretching back to long-forgotten centuries, and its silent waterways possessed a great fascination for us. We were never tired of exploring it, finding something to interest us even in the most out-of-the-way corners. In Miss Trevor we possessed a charming companion, a vital necessity, as you will admit, when people travel together. She was an uncommon girl, in more ways than one. A girl, so it seems to me, England alone is able to produce. She could not be described as a pretty girl. But then the word pretty is one that sometimes comes perilously near carrying contempt with it. One does not speak of Venus de Medici as pretty nor would one describe the Apollo Belvedere as very nice-looking. That Miss Trevor was exceedingly handsome would, I fancy, be generally admitted. At any rate, she would command attention wherever she might go, and that is an advantage which few of us possess. Should a more detailed description of her be necessary, I might add that she was tall and dark, with black hair and large luminous eyes that haunted one and were suggestive of a southern ancestor. She was the daughter, and indeed the only child, of the well-known Dean of Bedminster, and this was the first time she had visited Italy, or that she had been abroad. The wonders of the art country were all new to her, and in consequence our wanderings were one long succession of delight. Every day added some new pleasure to her experiences, while each night saw a life desire gratified. In my humble opinion, to understand Italy properly, one should not presume to visit her until after the first blush of youth has departed, and then, only when one has prepared oneself to properly appreciate her many beauties, Venice, above all others, is a city that must be taken seriously. To come at a proper spirit of the place, one must be in a reverent mood. Cheap jokes and cockney laughter, as unsuited to the place, where Faleri yielded his life, as a downcast face would be in Nice at carnival time. On the afternoon of a particular day from which I date my story, we had been to the island of Murano to pay a visit to the famous glass factory, of which it is the home. By the time we reached Venice once more, it was nearly sunset. Having something like an hour to spare, we made our way, at my wife's suggestion, to the Florian Caff on the Piazza St. Mark in order to watch the people. As usual, the place was crowded. 
but at first glance it looked as if we would be unable to find sufficient vacant chairs. Fortune favoured us, however, and when we had seated ourselves, and I had ordered coffee, we gave ourselves up to the enjoyment of what is perhaps one of the most amusing scenes in Venice. To a thoughtful mind, the great square must at all times be an object of absorbing interest. I have seen it at every hour and at almost every aspect, at a break of day, which one has to oneself and is able to enjoy its beauty undisturbed, at midday when the importunate shopkeepers endeavour to seduce one into entering their doors, by tales of the marvels therein, at sunset when the cafes are crowded, the band plays, and all is merriment, and last but not least at midnight when the moon is sailing above St Mark's, the square is full of strange shadows, and the only sound to be heard is the cry of a gull on the lagoon, or the sapremi of some belated gondolier. This is the moment to which I have looked forward all my life, said Miss Trevor, as she sat back in her chair and watched the animated crowd before her. Look at that pretty little boy with the pigeons flocking around him. What a picture he would make if only one had a camera. If you care to have a photo of him, one can easily be obtained, I remarked. Any one of these enterprising photographers would only be too pleased to take one for you for a few centissimi. I regret to say that many of our countrymen have a weakness for being taken in that way. Fancy Septimus Brown of Tooting, my wife remarked, a typical English paterfamilias with a green veil, blue spectacles and white umbrella, daring to ask the sun to record his image with the pigeons of St Mark's clustering about his venerable head. Can't you picture the pride of that worthy gentleman's family when they produce the album on Sunday afternoons and show it to their friends? This is Pa, the eldest girl will probably remark, when he was travelling in Venice as if Venice were a country in which one must be perpetually moving on. And that's how the pigeons came down to him to be fed. Isn't it splendid of him? Papa, who never ventured beyond Brighton Beach before, would be a person of importance from that moment. You forget one circumstance, however, Miss Trevor replied, who enjoyed an argument, and for this reason contradicted my wife on principle. In allowing himself to be taken at all, Brown of Tooting has advanced a step. For the moment he dared to throw off his insularity, as the picture at which you are laughing is indisputable testimony. Do you think he would dare to be photographed in a similar fashion in his own marketplace, standing outside his shop door with his assistants watching him from behind the counter? I'm quite sure he would not. A very excellent argument, I answered. Unfortunately, however, it carries with it its own refutation. The mere fact that Brown takes the photograph home to show his friends goes a long way to proving that he is still as insular as when he set out. If he did not consider himself of sufficient importance to shut out the portion of St. Mark's with his voluminous personality, he would have not employed the photographer at all, in which case we're no further advanced than before. These little sparring matches were a source of great amusement to us. The Cockney tourist was Miss Trevor's bête noire. Upon this failing, my wife and I loved to twit her. On the whole, I rather fancy she liked being teased by us. We had finished our coffee, and were still idly watching the people about us, when I noticed that my wife had turned a little pale. I was about to remark upon it, when she uttered an exclamation as if something had startled her. Good gracious, Dick, she cried. Surely it's not possible. It must be a mistake. What is it that cannot be possible, I inquired. What do you think you see? 
I glanced in the direction she indicated, but could recognise no one with whom I was acquainted. An English clergyman and his daughter were sitting near the entrance to the cafe, and some officers in uniform were on the other side of them again. But still my wife was looking in the same direction, and with an equally startled face. I placed my hand upon her arm. It was a long time since I had seen her so agitated. Come, darling, I said. Tell me what it is that troubles you. Look, she answered. Can you see the table a little to the right of that which those officers are seated? I was about to reply in the affirmative, but the shock I received deprived me of speech. The person to whom my wife referred had risen from his chair and was in the act of walking towards us. I saw him, I looked at him, looked away and then looked again. No, there was no room for doubt. The likeness was unmistakable. I should have known him anywhere. He was Dr. Nicola, the man who had played such an important part in our life's drama. Five years had elapsed since I had last seen him, but in that time he was scarcely changed at all. It was the same tall, thin figure, the same sallow, clean-shaven face, the same piercing black eyes. As he drew nearer, I noticed that his hair was a little more grey, that he looked slightly older, otherwise he was unchanged. But why was he coming to us? Surely he did not mean to speak to us. After the manner in which he had treated us in bygone days, I scarcely knew how to receive him. He on his side, however, was quite self-possessed. Raising his hat with the easy grace that always distinguished him, he advanced and held out his hand to my wife. My dear Lady Hatteras, he began in his most conciliatory tone, I felt sure you would recognise me. Observing that you had not forgotten me, I took the liberty of coming to pay my respects to you. Then, before my wife could reply, he had turned to me and was holding out his hand. For a moment, I had half determined not to take it. When his glittering eyes looked into mine, I changed my mind and shook hands with him more cordially than I should ever have thought it possible for me to do. Having thus broken the ice, and as we had to all intents and purposes permitted him to derive the impression that we were prepared to forgive the past, nothing remained for us but to introduce him to Miss Trevor. From the moment that he had approached us, she had been watching him covertly, and that he had produced a decided impression upon her was easily seen. For the first time since we had known her, she, usually so staid and unimpressionable, was nervous and ill at ease. The introduction affected, she drew back a little, and pretended to be absorbed in watching a party of our fellow countrymen who had taken their places at a table a short distance away from us. For my part, I do not mind confessing that I was by no means comfortable. I remember my bitter hatred of Nicola in the days gone by. I recall that terrible house in Port Said, and thought of the night on the island when I had rescued my wife from his clutches. In my estimation, then, he had been a villain of the deepest dye. And yet here he was, sitting beside me as calm and collected, and apparently as interested in the resume of our travels in Italy that my wife was giving him, as if we had been bosom friends throughout our lives. In anyone else, it would have been a piece of marvellous effrontery. In Nicola's case, however, it did not strike one in the same light. As I have so often remarked, he seemed incapable of acting like any other human being. His extraordinary personality lent a glamour to his simplest actions, 
and demanded for them an attention they would scarcely have received had he been less endowed. Have you been long in Venice? my wife inquired when she had completed the record of our doings. Feeling she must say something. I seldom remain anywhere for long, he answered with one of his curious smiles. I come and go like a will of the wisp. I'm here today and gone tomorrow. It may have been an unfortunate remark, but I could not help uttering it. For instance, you are in London today, I said, in Port Side next week, and in the South Sea Islands a couple of months later. He was not in the least disconcerted. Ah, I see you have not forgotten our South Sea adventure, he replied cheerfully. How long ago it seems, does it not? To me it is like a chapter out of another life. Then turning to Miss Trevor, who of course had heard the story of our dealings with him sufficiently to often be weary of it, he added, I hope you are not altogether disposed to think ill of me. Perhaps some day you will be able to persuade Lady Hatteras to forgive me. That is to say, if she has not already done so. Yet I do not know why I should plead for pardon, seeing that I am far from being in a repentant mood. As a matter of fact, I am very much afraid that should the necessity arise, I should be compelled to act as I did then. Then let us pray most fervently that the necessity may never arise, I answered. I, for one, do not entertain a very pleasant recollection of that time. I spoke so seriously that my wife looked sharply up at me, fearing, I suppose, that I might commit myself. She added quickly, I trust it may not, for I can assure you, Dr. Nicola, that my inclinations lie much nearer Bond Street than the South Sea Islands. All this time Miss Trevor said nothing, but I could tell from the expression upon her face that Nicola interested her more than she would ever been willing to admit. Is it permissible to ask where you are staying? he inquired, breaking the silence and speaking as if it were a point upon which he was most anxious to be assured. At Galagetti's, I answered. While in Venice, we always make it our home. Ah, the good Galagetti, said Nicola softly. It's a long time since I last had the pleasure of seeing him. I fancy, however, he would remember me. I was able to do him a slight service some time ago and I have always understood that he possesses a retentive memory. Then, doubtless feeling that he had stayed long enough, he rose and prepared to take leave of us. Perhaps, Lady Hatteras, you will permit me to do myself the honour of calling upon you, he said. I should be very pleased to see you, my wife replied, though with no real cordiality. He then bowed to Miss Trevor and shook hands with myself. Goodbye, Hatteras, he continued. I shall hope soon to see you again i expect we have lots of news for each other and doubtless you will be interested to learn the history and subsequent adventures of that peculiar little stick which caused you so much anxiety and myself so much trouble five years ago my address is the palace ravishi in the rio di consiglio where needless to say i shall be delighted to see you if you care to pay me a visit I thanked him for his invitation and promised that I would call upon him. With a bow he took his departure, leaving behind him a sensation of something missing, something that could not be replaced. To sit down and continue the conversation where he had broken into it was out of the question. We accordingly rose and after I discharged the bill, strolled across the piazza towards the lagoon. Observing that Miss Trevor was still very silent, I inquired the cause. If you really want me to tell you, I can only account for it by saying that your friend Dr. Nicola has occasioned it, she answered. 
i don't know why it should be so but that man has made a curious impression upon me he seems to affect every one in a different manner i said and for some reason made no further comment upon her speech when we had called a gondola and were on our way back to the hotel she referred to the subject again i think i ought to tell you that it is not the first time i have seen dr nicola she said you may remember that yesterday while phyllis was lying down i went out to do some shopping i cannot describe exactly which direction i took save that i went towards the rialto it is sufficient that in the end i reached a chemist's shop it was only a small place and very dark so dark indeed that i did not see that it contained another customer until i was really inside and i noticed a tall man busily engaged in conversation with the shopman he was declaiming against some drugs he had purchased there on the previous day and demanding that for the future there should be a better quality otherwise he would be compelled to take his patronage elsewhere in the middle of this harangue he turned round and i was permitted an opportunity of seeing his face he was none other than your friend dr nicola but my dear gertrude said phyllis with all due respect to your narrative do not see that the mere fact of your having met the dr nicola in a chemist's shop yesterday and your having been introduced to him to-day should have caused you so much concern i don't know why it should she answered but it is a fact nevertheless ever since i saw him yesterday his face with its terrible eyes has haunted me i dreamt of it last night all day long i have had it before me and now as if to add to the strangeness of the coincidence he proves to be the man of whom you have so often told me your demoniacal fascinating nicola you must admit that it is very strange a coincidence a mere coincidence that is all i replied nicholas possesses an extraordinary face and it must have impressed itself more deeply upon you than the average countenance is happy enough to do whether my explanation satisfied her or not she said no more upon the subject but that our strange meeting with nicola had an extraordinary effect upon her was plainly observable as a rule she was bright and merry a companion as one could wish to have on this particular evening however she was not herself at all it was the more annoying for the reason that i was anxious that she should shine on this occasion as, as i was expecting an old friend who was going to spend a few days with us in venice that friend was none other than the duke of glenbarth who previous to his succession to the dukedom had been known as the marquis of beckenham and who as the readers of the history of my adventures with dr nicola may remember figured as a very important factor in that strange affair ever since the day when i had had the good fortune to render him a signal service in the bay of a certain south coast watering place and from the time that he accepted my invitation to join us in venice i had looked forward to his coming with the greatest possible eagerness as it happened it was well nigh seven o'clock by the time we reached our hotel without pausing in the hall further than to examine the letter rack we ascended to our rooms on the floor above my wife and miss trevor had gone to their apartments i was about to follow their example as soon as i had obtained something from the sitting-room a nice sort of host a very nice host said a laughing voice as i entered he invites me to stay with him and is not at home to bid me welcome my dear old dick how are you my dear fellow i cried hastening forward to greet him i must beg your pardon ten thousand times i had not the least idea that you would be here so early we have been sitting on the piazza and did not hurry home 
you needn't apologise he answered for once an italian train was before its time now tell me about yourself how is your wife how are you what sort of holiday are you having i answered his question to the best of my ability keeping back my most important item as a surprise for him and now i said it's time to dress for dinner but before you do so i have some important news for you who do you think is in venice needless to say he mentioned everyone but the right person you'd better give up you'll never guess i said who is the most unlikely person you expect to see in venice at the present moment old macpherson my solicitor he replied promptly the rascal would no more think of crossing the channel than he would contemplate standing on his head in the middle of the strand must be macpherson nonsense i cried i don't know macpherson in the first place and i doubt if he would interest me in the second no no this man is neither a scotchman nor a lawyer he is an individual bearing the name of nicola i quite expected to surprise him but i scarcely look for such an outbreak of astonishment what he cried in amazement you must be joking you don't mean to say that you have seen nicola again i not only mean that i have seen him i replied but i will go further than that and say that he was sitting on the piazza with us not more than half an hour ago what do you think his appearance in venice means i don't know what to think he replied with an expression of almost comic bewilderment upon his face it seems impossible and yet you don't look as if you're joking i'll tell you the news in all sober earnestness i answered dropping my bantering tone it is a fact that nicola is in venice and what is more that he has given me his address he has invited me to call upon him and if you like we'll go together what do you say i shall have to have time to think about it glenbarth replied seriously i don't suppose for a moment he has any intention of abducting me again nevertheless i am not going to give him the opportunity by joe how that fellow's face comes back to me it haunts me miss trevor has been complaining of the same thing i said miss trevor the duke repeated and pay who may miss trevor be a friend of my wife's i answered she has been travelling with us for the last few months i think you'll like her now come along with me and i'll show you your room i suppose your man has discovered it by this time stevens would find it if this hotel were constructed on the same principle as the maze at hampton court he answered he has the virtue of persistence when he wants to find a thing he secures the person who would be the most likely to tell him and sticks to him until his desire has been gratified it turned out as he had predicted and three-quarters of an hour later our quartet sat down to dinner my wife and glenbarth by virtue of an old friendship agreed remarkably well while miss trevor now somewhat recovered from her nicola indisposition was more like her old self it was a beautiful night and after dinner it was proposed seconded and carried unanimously that we should charter a gondola and go for a row upon the canal on our homeward voyage the gondolier by some strange chance turned into the rio del consiglio perhaps you can tell me which is the palace for vichy i said to the man he pointed to a building we were in the act of approaching there it is signor he said at one time it was a very great palace but now here he shrugged his shoulders to enable us to understand that its glory had departed from it not another word was said upon the subject but i noticed that all our faces turned in the direction of the building with the exception of one solitary window it was in total darkness as i looked at the latter i wondered whether nicola were in the room and if so what was he doing 
was he poring over some of his curious books trying some new experiment in chemistry or putting to test some theory such as i had found him at work upon in that curious house in port said a few minutes later we had left the rio di consiglio behind us i turned to the right and were making our way back by another watery thoroughfare towards the grand canal thanks to your proposition we have had a delightful evening miss trevor said as we paused to say good-night at the foot of the staircase a quarter of an hour or so later i have enjoyed myself immensely you should not tell him that dear said my wife you know how conceited he is already he will take all the credit and be unbearable for days afterwards and turning to me she added you are going to smoke i suppose i had thought of doing so i replied and then i added with mock humility if you do not wish it of course i will not do so i was only going to keep glenbarth company they laughed and bade us good-night and when we had seen them depart in the direction of the rooms we lit our cigars and passed into the balcony outside at this hour of the night the grand canal looked very still and beautiful and we both felt the humour for its confidences you know hatteras said glenbarth after the few moments pause that followed our arrival in the open air that nicholas turning up in venice at this particular juncture savours to me a little of the uncanny what his mission may be of course i cannot tell but that it is some diabolical thing or another i haven't a doubt one thing is quite certain i answered he would hardly be here without an object and after our dealings with him in the past i am prepared to admit that i don't trust him any more than you do and now that he has asked you to call upon him what are you going to do i paused before i replied the question involved greater responsibilities than were at first glance apparent knowing nicola so well i had not the least desire or intention to be drawn into any of the plots or machinations he was so fond of working against other people i must confess nevertheless that i could not help feeling a large amount of curiosity as to the subsequent history of that little stick to obtain which he had spent so much money and had risked so many lives yes i think i shall call upon him i said reflectively as if i had not quite made up my mind surely to see him once more could do no harm good heavens what an extraordinary fellow he is fancy you or i being afraid of any other man as we are afraid of him for mind you i know that you stand quite as much in awe of him as i do why do you know when my eyes fell upon him at this afternoon i felt the return of the old dread of his presence used to cause in me five years ago the effect he had upon miss trevor was also very singular when you come to think of it by the way hatteras talking of miss trevor what an awfully nice girl she is i don't know when i have ever met a nicer who is she she is the daughter of the dean of bedminster i answered splendid old fellow i like his daughter the duke remarked yes i may say that i like her very much i was glad to hear this for i had my own little dreams and my wife who by the way is a born matchmaker had a long time ago come to a similar conclusion she is a very nice girl I replied and what is more she is as good as she is nice then i continued he will indeed be a lucky man who wins gertrude trevor for his wife and now since our cigars are finished what do you say to bed it's growing late i expect you're tired after your journey i'm quite ready he answered i shall sleep like a top i only hope and pray that i shall not dream of nicola End of chapter one